0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. It's been two weeks. No, it hasn't. One week. It just seems like two weeks. It's been a very long week. Matthew chapter 11. I want to pick up on what we did last week, review some, and then try to conclude. And if if we did our homework well last week, then today will be easy. If um, we struggled last week, then today may not be easy. But We'll take a look at it again, regardless of whether we think it's easy or not. It's the Holy Spirit's the one that's teaching us, so we can rest upon Him in uh, leading us in these things. I also have some pictures of the uh, ordination and the things there, so uh, depending on... Time we have remaining. Maybe I'll start with the pictures. How about that? We'll celebrate that and then we'll get to our class. Before we do any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer. Make sure each one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do rejoice in your faithfulness and we thank you for the, the daily blessings of your word. Your grace towards each one of us, day by day, moment by moment. We thank you that this is the day the Lord has made. We thank you that your mercies are renewed each morning, and great is thy faithfulness. We ask for your faithfulness once again to be manifest here this morning as we open up your word. We ask for eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. I forget what I was doing. Oh, that's right. I was following up on my... uh, Devotion this morning coming from June 14th. There's room in the cross for you. I like that hymn. All right. I'll minimize that. First thing I did on Friday morning was, of course, I we were here Wednesday night. Flew out Thursday for Washington State. Spent Thursday with my parents and my sisters and got a bunch of pictures there, but you don't care about any of that. Friday morning, though, we woke up and went over... Went over to uh, John Alinda Eichmanns who you see on the board there, and uh, picked up John, was able to get him down to Portland. The real benefit of flying into Seattle rather than flying into Portland, aside from seeing my parents and sisters, was the fact that I was able to provide transportation for John to get down to the ordination service in Portland, Oregon. We ate a lot while we were there, and uh, I was very glad that they didn't follow through. on. So often in the scriptures when... uh, they were sent forth, it was with, uh, they laid hands on them after prayer and fasting. Well, we didn't do any of the fasting, i got to tell you that. We ate and ate and ate. John Eichmann there on the left, Robert Rice. Uh, the fellow to his left is R.D. Fortner, who had visited us here two Sundays ago, you might have remembered. Uh, then Robert Rice Sr. is across the table from R.D. Then in the middle there on the right is uh, Gary Glennie, who you may know from Tulsa, Oklahoma perhaps years past. He'd been an assistant to Glenn at Tulsa for some period of time. Also went through the seminary at Tulsa, ordained it by the Colonel at Baraka. And then on the near here is uh, is uh, Gordon Shearer from Manning, Oregon. And then his wife Lois, her sleeve, made it to that picture. There I got Gordon and Lois together. Uh Gordon and Lois are uh Catherine Kennedy's old uh, Gordon's Catherine Kennedy's old pastor from, from Manning, Oregon. This was the church where the ordination took place in, uh, Bible Doctrine Church of Portland. So I took a lot of pictures there. There is a podium there for a real live face to face type pastor to stand and teach. Otherwise, there's a, a big screen TV hookup for the, the, uh, they, they replicate the classes out of, out of, uh, Houston. If you're not familiar with how a, a Baraka hookup church works in various places around the country. Robert, Robert and his dad. Disappointed me that picture came out blurry. That, uh, I wanted a better picture of Robert and his dad, Gary Glenny. Anyway, they got us all set up. That's uh, Pastor Kendall Weeks there in the foreground. He was really the main facilitator for the whole weekend. Of the five pastors that were there, Kendall was the one that was pretty well in charge of just about everything. He had every detail imaginable all worked out. So there were a total of five pastors on the council, uh, John Eichmann, myself, Gary Glenny, Gordon Shearer, and Kendall Weeks. And so they got us warmed up, R.D. Fortner went up to the podium, he read an introduction, what is an ordination, why do we do an ordination, why do we have an examination, and what's the purpose for why everybody's gathered here today, and then a whole string of pictures that look very similar, because we sat there for four hours, and uh, went through 96 questions from every branch of theology imaginable, and uh, very good, very good time. A lot of those pictures are the same. There's Probably the best picture I took on the whole weekend was Robert and Setsuko. She sends her greetings, by the way, to all the the ladies here. A couple more shots of the outside of the church. This must be very interesting to anybody that's listening on the MP3. You don't have advantage of, you're missing out on some great uh, pictures, you should be here. Sorry, you weren't at the end of the this is Sunday now at the end of the ordination service where the certificate was being presented. Uh, the one of the few pictures I actually got of Christopher. He's gotten rather large and he's almost 16 years old now. So for those of you that remember the the 10 year old kid that first showed up, he's uh, he's a bit larger. Had a certificate for Robert, some flowers for Setsuko, uh, some friendly words for Christopher about. What a bummer it is to be a pastor's kid, but you got to put up with it, and you got to support your father in the ministry. Christopher took that very well. And then Robert had the final address, and I think this lamp on the podium kind of messed up any attempt I had to get a non-blurry picture. So that was about the best I got because of that lamp that was up there. Anyway, of all the pastors, I really enjoyed Kendall. Um, I never met Kendall before. I never met Gary Glennie before. Um Really felt uh, an affinity with Kendall. We were in the Army roughly about the same time, went to seminary roughly about the same time, started pastoring roughly about the same time. Uh, he likewise met a woman in the town where he was going to seminary and never left the town. So, you know, I said, I know how that works. I met a girl in Austin and I'm still there. So uh, Kendall, uh, of course, Army background and different things. We had a lot in common and uh, different things there. Kendall and his wife, Martha. Yeah, we had a wonderful cake, great time cutting the cake. It was almost like a wedding. We we insisted no one could eat the cake until it was cut. And, uh, of course, Robert needed some help with that, so Sesco came and helped him. And then we, we were joking about throwing a bouquet or throwing the rice or something. His last name is Rice, so we had more jokes that way, too. Kendall and his wife, Martha, they adopted two, two children, a, a sister and a brother. I think they were... Four and one or five and two or something like that when they first adopted them. And uh, now they're 14 and 11. Just a wonderful, wonderful family. So, all right. Anyway, those are the pictures there. <laughs> the last item was we, uh, Robert and Setsuko had a gift for each of the pastors that were there. But they wanted to step off in kind of a side room to do it. And the only room that was right there off of the, the fellowship hall was the nursery. Yeah, we ended up in the nursery. And we thought, well, that's that's appropriate. You know, they ought to just... Every once in a while, every pastor needs to end up back in the nursery and try to figure out what's really going on. Anyway, those were the blessings there. All right, 10 minutes of our class, but it's worthwhile to remind ourselves that the ministry does go on. There's another generation of pastors and a real uh, real treat to be a part of that. All right, Matthew chapter 11. Woe is upon the privileged. And we have gone through... Six points of study, including under point six, some significant subpoints. And then last week we took you through principles. We took you through six principles of omniscient sovereignty and human volition. And uh, hopefully some of that made sense. And if it didn't, you've had a week now to review the MP3 file that's been sitting on the website doing nothing for the last seven days. You have a chance to go ahead and download it, listen to it, review it. Because what follows then expands upon that. All too often we look at this passage starting in verse 20 and taking us down through verse 30. And all too often it's divided into two halves. I don't have any problem dividing it into two halves. There's a significant context shift between verse 24 and 25. So I don't have any problem dividing it into two halves. And we're going to deal with the second half this morning. Verses 25 through 30, ending up with, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and we'll look at that. But I think we truly miss the point of verses 25 through 30 if we fail to see that it is an application of what we must understand in verses 20 through 24. That it is an application of the omniscient sovereignty and the human volition that's at work in verses 25 through 30. And if we don't Figure it out in verses 20 through 24, then we'll miss the point in verses 25 through 30. So we'll spend some time on that again here this morning. The omniscient foreknowledge of God is aware of all realities and unrealities, actualities and potentialities. They're clear on all the vocabulary I've been using. Reality is what's real, what happens. That's reality. See, unreality is not what's happening. Okay. The reality is, is I'm in the pulpit this morning teaching Bible class. An unreality might be, and there's an infinite number of unrealities, an unreality might be that I stayed in Portland an extra week or I stayed in Vancouver an extra week. Uh, you know, had some invitations say, hey, why don't you stick around late, do some teaching. No, i am got to get back to my flock. So a reality is, is that I'm in the pulpit this morning at Austin Bible Church. An unreality would be that I'm in Vancouver, I'm in Portland, I'm in Seattle. There's an infinite number of unrealities. But there's one reality, because what is, is. Some of these are concepts we dealt with in hermeneutics, by the way. But God knows them all. He knows the realities and the unrealities, the actualities and the potentialities. What's potential? Well, until you make a decision, there could be some different potentials. I might potentially have uh, a peanut butter sandwich for lunch. I might potentially have a, a lunch meat sandwich for lunch. They're both potential until I make the choice. And then whatever I eat becomes the actuality. All right? Now, all of this stems from our viewpoint in time. We're creatures of time. We 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 proceed through the flow of time one day at a time, constantly forward in a, in a linear fashion. Now, under this, God knows the reality of what happened, what is happening, and what will happen. Every reality, he knows it all from Alpha to Omega. And remember, of course, the distinctions of time are always from our perspective. He knew uh, the illustration with Nineveh. He knew what would happen when Jonah went. He knew what would happen when Nahum went. He also knows potentialities of what might happen. What will happen and how those happenings are going to change in response to other circumstances and details. And this is what really we lock in on with verse 21 and with verse 23. If the miracles which had occurred in Tyre, uh, had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented. So this is an if and a would have, an if and a would have. God knows how the potentialities change in response to other circumstances and details being changed. And He knows them all. Likewise with Sodom, that they could have repented, You will be a uh, Capernaum. You will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. So here's a would have that God knows about, and He knows about every other could have, would have, and should have, for the last 2,000 years. And none of those would have resulted in Sodom's destruction either. Sodom would have repented in Abraham's day and continued 2,000 years later. So this is how we understand, and and the full depth of that may not sink in right away, but the fact that he knows a what-if from 2,000 years ago and how that changes or doesn't change to the very moment he says those words is extraordinary. When we talk about the things we might have done, we would have done, see, what would have happened if I hadn't uh, uh, dropped out of the University of Washington in 1988, say, or 1980, I'm sorry, 1987. What would have happened, say, Well, I wouldn't have joined the army because I would have still been in school. And think about all those other things that would have been different, for example. Now, under this, there's the illustration with Abraham, Lot, and what would happen with Sodom if they would have done the miracles there. I ask the question, whose fault is it that Sodom was destroyed? Was it Sodom's fault for not repenting? Or was it God's fault for not arranging the circumstantial conditions that would have resulted in them repenting? See, we have to look at both sides of the the issue because Sodom didn't repent. We know that. But we also know that God was perfectly aware of circumstances that would have resulted in them repenting. The miracles done in Capernaum. If the miracles done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented. So, because God didn't send somebody into into Sodom to do all those Capernaum miracles, because God didn't do that, they didn't repent. You follow? Does that make sense? And so, someone could say, well, then it's God's fault that Sodom didn't repent. Because God could have sent a prophet in there to do those Capernaum miracles. And if He would have, send a prophet in there to do those Capernaum miracles, then Sodom would have repented. And they wouldn't have had to be destroyed. So what we really want to say is that it was God's fault. If we look at these things in a simplistic fashion with an either or, or if we can broaden the view instead of saying, wait a minute, why are we looking at this as an either or? Let's look at this as a both and. We, we, if we can, if we can get, escape that trap of the either-or, I think we'll do much better with it. Because both of those are true statements. Sodom did not repent. That is true. And God did not send those conditions. That also is true. It's a both-and. It's not an either-or. So point E, we looked at Tyre and Sidon. And at some point F, we dealt with these realities. And they are realities. You and I can talk about the what ifs all day long but we don't know i I, I can tell you you know if if i if i wasn't saved what would i be doing today all likelihood if i was not a believer i probably wouldn't be alive today some of the dumb things i would have done risking my life and everything else but do i know that for a fact no because i'm not omniscient i don't have all the the foreknowledge to know what the what ifs would have been which leads us to these principles. Those, those under some points one and two, those are simply the realities, and I don't want to repeat those. All right, the principles now. Now, I title this Principles of Second Class Conditional Statements because that's how we're approaching it. We could also title it Principles of Omniscient Sovereignty and Human Volition because that's ultimately what we're looking at here. But we're approaching it from the standpoint of these second-class conditional statements. These, if you would have, then this would have. Okay? If, then. But it's an if that's not true. So it's because it's an if that's not true, then the would have doesn't happen. But it could have happened if the if did happen. Does that make sense? All right. We use it all the time. It's a feature of of any language. It's a feature of logic because it's a feature of thought as a conditional statement. Now, we understand what accountability is. Accountability is the just principle of decisional consequences. I don't think there's any believer in the history of the church that doesn't understand accountability. Say, you reap what you sow. Galatians 6, 7, it's that simple. You reap what you sow. And I think every believer those with sound teaching, those with not so sound teaching, uh, those with with Roman theology, Reformed theology, uh, Calvinistic, Arminian. I think everybody agrees. You reap what you sow. You make a choice, face the consequences. Please God for blessing. Displease God for discipline. It's a basic fundamental principle. Galatians 6, 7. God will not be mocked. And so it's a principle of accountability This is how we raise our children. They're accountable. They come under discipline when they disobey. This is how God deals with us. After all, we are his children. Now, God's omniscience doesn't change our accountability. I hope we can grab hold of that. Just because he knows what choice we would make under other circumstances doesn't make us any less accountable for the choice we make under these circumstances. I hope that makes sense. God's omniscient awareness of what potential decisions would be under different potential circumstantial conditions doesn't alter the just consequences of what the actual decisions are under the actual circumstantial conditions faced. Because every temptation we face is our test. Every temptation we face is our test. See? As I illustrated, temptations get a little bit easier or harder depending on the circumstances around. The the if if the conditions are such that okay, there's an opportunity to commit a sin, but there's too many witnesses around and it's it just the the chances of getting caught are, are just way too high. And you look at it, and maybe the temptation hits you, but you think, oh, no way. Because I can never get away with it. That's not as tempting, is it? But the temptation grows when the odds of getting caught shrink. See? Which is what makes the, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament so extraordinary. Joseph was sold into slavery, away from home, down there in Egypt. Who is going to know? You know, how to get caught? You know, and here's Potiphar's wife who, who's making moves on him and everything. That's what makes his temptation so extraordinary and his faithfulness to the Lord so uh, noteworthy, is because even though nobody's going to know, how is he going to get caught? No one would blame him anyway. He's a slave. But he does the right thing anyway. See, that's the that's the height of character, integrity, when you do the right thing when no one's looking, right? Because God's looking. We're still accountable. So what we want to understand here is that, okay, there, there could be potential circumstantial conditions, and those conditions might be different under other scenarios. It doesn't change our accountability for the scenario we do face, the condition we do face. See, that's what we want to get across. Because God always at His good pleasure, can put us under whatever circumstantial conditions He wants to do. See? Now, we have a promise that God will not test us beyond that which we're able to bear. Right? Where's that promise found? First Corinthians 10.13. Alright, there we go. In the Bible, yeah. Alright, 1 Corinthians 10.13. Now, That says he will not. Does that mean he cannot? You know? If God really, could he put a temptation in front of you that was so overwhelming that you wouldn't stand a chance? You know? (laughs) But why would he do that? Why would he test us beyond what we're able to bear? Why would he put us uh, under testing that is beyond any capacity we have to deal with it? What would that show? What would that demonstrate? What would that accomplish? How would that be consistent with his wisdom, with his mercy, with his plan? It wouldn't be. That's why he doesn't do it. But he can. He certainly has the power to do it. He certainly knows how to do it. I mean, think about it. You know how to do it. Don't you? Do you know how to push your husband's buttons? Of course you do. And husbands know how to push their wives' buttons. You know what? You, you know. <laughs> So does God know? Yeah. Could he, over, could he put us in a test that's way over our heads and we'd blow it? Absolutely. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he's faithful. God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which we're able to bear. So there, there could be other circumstantial conditions. Sure, there could be. But it was his choice, sovereignty, that we face the test under these conditions. And so we're facing the test under these conditions. What are we going to do about it? All right? What are we going to do about it? I don't think I turned my phone off, did I? Now, I don't know what that beeping is. Something outside, it's not my phone. But something outside that's not my phone reminded me that I have a phone in my pocket that could go off. We will have Pastor George Meisinger in town today. And uh, I expect him to call when he's closer to Austin. Looking forward to that. Okay, so this is principle number two God's omniscient awareness of what potential decisions would be under different potential circumstantial conditions. Are you following all that? Because now, see, Sodom, under different circumstantial conditions, a prophet doing the Capernaum miracles. If there was a prophet there doing Capernaum miracles, then Sodom would have repented. Sodom would have made different decisions, and God knows that. So just because they would have made better decisions under different circumstances, that doesn't change the fact that they made awful decisions in, this, in the conditions they faced, and they were judged, because we're accountable for the decisions we make under the conditions God places us. Thirdly, and this oh, this is a big one. For every volitional decision ever made, your decision to accept Christ, your decision to marry whoever you married, your decision to come to church this morning, your decision to everything, Sodom's decision to reject God's word, Capernaum's decision to reject the ministry of Jesus Christ. For every decision, volitional decision ever made, God knows the could-haves. The could-haves and would-haves. God's omniscience and omnipotence could have crafted circumstantial conditions which would have resulted in the opposite volitional decision being made. Could God have sent a prophet into Sodom to do those Capernaum miracles? Sure. And if he would have, would that have changed Sodom's decision? Yeah. Jesus just told us that. They would have repented. God knows he knows every decision you're going to make, but he also knows what circumstances to create so that you make a different choice. He knows all that. And so carry it through now. Since God could have, but did not create those conditions. It's his sovereignty that's played forth. it's the outworking of his sovereignty. God could have sent a prophet, a Capernaum miracle-working prophet in a Sodom. He could have, but He didn't. That's, that's sovereignty. That's sovereignty. He has mercy on whom He has mercy. He hardens on whom He hardens. That's sovereignty. He could have sent a Capernaum miracle-working prophet in the Sodom, but He didn't. Instead, He sent Lot. <laughs> All right. Now, because he could have, but didn't, sovereignty works. All right? Does that make sense? Are we following? That's the best part. The sovereign will of God in crafting one set of circumstantial conditions and not crafting any other set Absolutely proves his sovereignty is not limited by volitional creatures or actions. Absolutely proves it. Absolutely proves it. See, the Arminian will tell you that God's sovereignty is modified by volition. They're dead wrong. God's sovereignty is not, what, not at all modified, handcuffed, impaired, restricted, limited, diminished... By volition. Not at all. God's sovereignty is perfectly functional. Because he chooses the the conditions, the circumstances, for every volitional test. And he knows what the volitional decision is going to be. He knows what conditions would be necessary to bring about the opposite decision. And so, by crafting the, 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 the conditions the way they are, his sovereignty is not impaired at all. Do I need to draw pictures for this? I can. i got lots of paper right up here. Okay? In fact, why don't I? Sometimes, you know what they say, a picture is worth... Yeah, there you go. You bring that up. Perfect. Did some singing on uh, Sunday night. Looks like. All right. Every decision. We can take Sodom. That's the one here in this passage. Sodom had a volitional decision to make. To repent or not repent. Sometimes we draw it out. I remember I I grew up with this as a picture. Did you grow up with that? Dan probably did. Positive, negative volitions the opposite poles of of choices you make. Okay? Every choice you make. Am I going to come to class this morning or am I going to skip class? Well, you all made the choice to come this morning. All right? Now, for every choice you make, you make that choice in some set of circumstantial conditions. No decision is made in a vacuum. Every choice you ever make comes under circumstantial conditions of some sort. I mean, the choice for Christ, the the gospel message doesn't come in a vacuum because you can't come to the Father and to the Son unless the Father draws you. And so the Holy Spirit convicts and the Father draws and the veil of darkness is pierced and, and somehow light pierces through our foolish, darkened minds. Those are the circumstantial conditions. Okay? Now, with Sodom, this is our illustration right here, they faced a set of conditions, including, um, and they responded negatively, including Lot, and Mrs. Lot, and daughters, and other things, and they faced those conditions, and they did not repent. They made a negative volitional choice, they were destroyed. That's the historical reality. But, Jesus Christ tells us that if the Capernaum miracles, the miracles that Jesus did in Capernaum, if those miracles had been done in Sodom, they would have repented. So Capernaum miracles then could have been done. Maybe Lot would have been the prophet to do it, or Abraham or somebody else, doesn't matter. Doesn't it wouldn't have had to have been Jesus Christ, it would have just been anyone. If the miracles had been done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have repented. So, he knows the uh, circumstantial conditions that would result in the decision that is made, but also how to craft the circumstantial uh, conditions in a way that the opposite decision gets made. See, this is where I think pictures help. Because is it ever possible... For an angel or a human being, those are the volitional creatures. Animals don't have volition. Trees don't have volition. Um, but, animal, but angels and humans are the moral creatures of this universe. Is it possible that they will make a choice to thwart the plan of God? No. No purpose of thine can be thwarted. So when Satan fell to that thwart God's plan, no. When Adam fell, did that thwart God's plan? No. Not at all. Because in the exercise of negative volition, who sent these uh, circumstantial uh, conditions right there? God did. God sovereignly established those conditions. Knowing that this was going to be the choice. God also sovereignly did not send those conditions, knowing that if He did, that would be the choice. Right? So knowing that sending those conditions would bring about that result, God didn't send those conditions. God sent those conditions sovereignly sent those conditions right there on the right. Knowing that the choice would be negative. Now, that's sovereignty. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're going along in their deal and Lot shows up and these are the conditions. Do they repent? No, they don't repent. Their their volition is negative rather than positive as God knew it would be. But their volition is negative. And what do they face? Judgment. Why do they face judgment? Because they didn't repent. They face judgment because they did not repent. I again remind you of our passage here in Matthew 11 he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Because they did not repent. Accountability is the just principle of decisional consequences. They made a decision, they faced the consequences. They did not repent, they faced God's justice. Ought to make sense. It ought to make sense. But see, the Armenian goes wrong when he says that, that uh, God's sovereignty is affected by those decisions. It's, it's, that's not true. It's the other way around. God has total sovereignty over all of this, knowing what the responses are going to be. See. All right. The Calvinist, by the way, does the opposite. He goes on to say that there's no volition. Because everything is sovereignty. Can't take it to that step because the causative principle of accountability, sowing and reaping, uh, the causative you did not repent demonstrates that they made a choice and they faced those consequences. That's right. That the choice is then causative. So, flipping back now, did the picture help? I hope the picture helped. Because... We have no control over whatever conditions we face. Okay? We've got no control over that. God's sovereignly determining all that. But whatever conditions we face, in whatever conditions we're in, we have to make choices. Am I going to obey God or disobey God? Am I going to be on positive volition or negative volition? And if I obey God's word, or if I disobey God's word, i face the uh i answer for those issues all right so the sovereign will of god in crafting one set of circumstantial conditions and not crafting any other remember the reality is one it's what it is the potentialities are infinite the reality is as i'm in the pulpit at Austin Bible Church. I'm not in Portland. I'm not in Vancouver. I'm not in Seattle. I'm not in Rome. I'm not in Spain. I'm not on the moon. Okay? There's an infinite number of places where I'm not because the reality is I'm right here. And so God in His sovereignty crafts one set of circumstantial conditions and He sovereignly does not craft any other of an infinite amount of things that He could do. And when he crafts the one set that he chooses, we are absolutely demonstrating that his sovereignty is not limited by any volitional creatures or actions. The fifth principle. Decisional consequences are not administered for circumstantial conditions that are not faced. In other words, you're not accountable for a test you don't go through. You would think that's obvious. But I think a lot of Calvinists missed this one. Decisional consequences are not administered for circumstantial conditions that are not faced. You're accountable for what what you face. If he gives you one talent, or five talents, or ten talents, you're accountable for what he gives you, not for what he didn't give you. If he gave you one, be faithful with the one. If he gave you five, be faithful with the five. If he gave you ten, be faithful with the ten. Because it's his sovereignty that gave you one, five, or ten. All right? Giving is not according to what you don't have. It's according to what you have. If the readiness is present, what's readiness? It's volition. Okay? If the readiness is present, it's approved. 2 Corinthians 8.12. So you don't face, you're not accountable for choices or conditions that you're not placed under. Bob, Justin, uh, they're not married. Right, Gentry? Not married. You're not accountable for marriage testing right now. You might be someday, but today you're not. God's not going to judge you for being a rotten husband today. Neither will He reward you for being a wonderful husband today. Because you're not facing that test. Decisional consequences are not administered for circumstantial conditions that are not faced. Sodom never faced the circumstantial conditions of having a Capernaum working miracle worker right there. They never faced that. They faced the conditions they faced. Lot and whatever else was in that town. And they failed to repent. So they faced those decisional consequences. These principles affirm the sovereignty of God. These principles affirm the free will of man. Not a neither or, but a both and. But a both and. They're accountable for the choices they made. Now, this comes back to what we'll deal with in the second part of this. So let's move on down your outline to point seven. Point seven, if I haven't lost everybody. Point six was all the abstract thinking. Point seven, judgment upon the wicked will be proportional. Judgment upon the wicked will be proportional. I'm going to give you a ton of passages that you can go through at your leisure. Judgment upon the wicked will be proportional. It's going to be more tolerable for Sodom than Capernaum at the great white throne. How do I say that? Well, I'm just telling you what Jesus said. It will be more tolerable. Verse 24, nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you when the unbelievers of Capernaum stand at the great white throne judgment and they're cast in the lake of fire for all eternity, their punishment will be proportionately worse than Sodom's. And in part, that's difficult for us to understand. Because for us, eternal separation from the grace of God and the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ, eternal separation in the lake of fire is infinitely unthinkable. Anyone want to think about that? Separated from Jesus Christ forever? No. We're united to Jesus Christ forever. But judgment upon the wicked will be proportional. We have Job thirty four eleven, a couple of Psalms, Psalm twenty eight four, Psalm sixty two twelve, three passages from Jeremiah, Jeremiah seventeen ten, twenty one fourteen, thirty two nineteen. Matthew 16:27. In addition to the passage we have here, Matthew 11:22 and 24 are the verses we have here. We also have Matthew 16:27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father and is with His angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. According to his deeds. The wickedness of the wicked that comes upon them. Obviously, those that have done more and worse and greater evil will be repaid greater repayment because it is according to. Repay according to. Romans 2.6 1 Corinthians 3.8 and 4.5 You've got to be familiar with those been in 1 Corinthians now for three years. 1 Corinthians 3.8 He who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Reward is proportional. Judgment is proportional. Chapter 4 and verse 5 Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. Rewards are proportional. Judgment is proportional. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 9. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 9. For after all, it is only just for God. And God is absolute justice. It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. But it's dealing out retribution, repayment, payback, to use the modern idiom. Finally, Revelation 2.23 and Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13. I'll look at that last one, Revelation 20, 12 and 13. I've, I've taken you through this in the past many times, and I don't mind doing it again. Because in my mind, if you grab a hold of this and you see it with your eyes and you put your finger on it, you can point it out, that means you can teach it to somebody else. In verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. So this is after the destruction of the heavens and the earth. Great white throne judgment. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Notice books, plural. Books were opened. So imagine a long encyclopedia set of books. And they're all laid open, cataloging everything these guys ever did. But their sins, keep in mind, sins were already paid for, but we'll talk about some of that too. Anyway, regardless, books were opened. Books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. So you got a whole lot of books here, and you got the book of life. Follow that. And the dead were judged from the things that are written in the books according to their deeds. They were judged according to the books, according to their deeds. So that means Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong and Stalin and every other mass murderer of millions and all their great evil and wickedness. They're going to answer for those. All right? Now, the standard for eternal life, though, is the book of life. We don't want to miss that. Uh, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, again, according to their deeds. That's everything in those books. And then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Second death. You and I don't have to worry about the second death. Why? Because we've had the second birth. If you've had two births, there's only one death. But if you've only had one birth, physical birth, there's two deaths awaiting you. So this is a second death, the lake of fire. If any man's name, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, now that's this book over here, the book of life, has nothing to do with all these other books over here, where their wicked deeds are being recorded so that they can be repaid And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So please, please, please understand that salvation, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, if you have the Son, you have eternal life. Your name is in the Lamb's book of life. You are redeemed. What a blessing. If you're not in the Lamb's book of life, you're going to hell. And when hell is emptied, you stand at the great white throne judgment, and you're going to the lake of fire for all eternity to be paid back for everything that's recorded in those books. Judgment is proportional. Judgment upon the wicked will be proportional. And that's why when Jesus says it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for Capernaum in the day of judgment, we start to understand some of the things that he was referring to there. All right, point eight. And I apologize, I failed. Okay, I got point eight on here, but I failed to get the subpoints on the slideshow. So I'll give you a point eight. There are subpoints that you'll have to listen to that aren't on the screen. The message of woe is followed by messages of praise, come and take. The message of woe. Remember, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Okay. The message of woe is followed by messages of praise, come and take verse 25, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. So the message of woe is followed by messages of praise, come and take. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's verse 28. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take is actually tied to learn. And we'll, we'll discuss that under point C some point c but we have messages of praise come and take praise come and take in verses 25 through 30 and if we've done our homework last week and again in the first 45 minutes of this morning 40 minutes of this morning if we've done our homework we're going to see how the the sovereign circumstantial conditions are in god's hands but the choices we make and our accountability, we come under judgment for. I hope we understand that. So at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So God has established different circumstantial conditions. He's established hiding and revealing Circumstantial conditions. Who made him do all those? Nobody made him do all those. He chose to do all those. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. God the Father always does that which is well-pleasing in His sight. He works all things after the counsel of His own will. Alright. And this is where I'm out of a slideshow, but I'll just recite it for you and you can write it down. sub so point A. We'll start with praise. From verse 25. Praise from verse 25. And the word is ex amalageo. I'll go back to the method over here. Ex amalageo. Now you might be familiar with amalageo. You ever heard of amalageo? Homalageo? X amalageo. Number 1843 is the strongest number. Now, take the X off. You've got hamalageo, and that's to confess. If we confess our sins. Hamalageo. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. X amalageo is a compound, it's an intensive. Now, hamalageo, hamas. Like homo, right? Same. Logos, word. Same word. In other words, you say the same thing about something. God says it's a sin. God says it's, un- it's uh, unacceptable. And you have agreement. You say, yes, Father, I committed this sin. And I'm in total agreement that it is unacceptable. It violates your standard of righteousness. Guilty as charged. You're paid for by Jesus Christ. Confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because just as we're in agreement that it's unacceptable, violating his righteousness, he's in agreement that Christ paid for it. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So every confession is a statement of agreement. It is a homo logos. All right? Now, X Out. Think exit. Out. And I'm going to confess Out. Like, shout out. We have a, with confess, what happens if we change the con to a pro? We go from confess to profess. And a profession is simply an externalized confession. Make a profession of faith, you're verbally proclaiming to the whole world that you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. These terms are all related. Between confession and profession. ex is to confess, to profess, to acknowledge openly and joyfully. Hence we translate it praise. To acknowledge openly and joyfully. Now it's not a compliment. I'm not praising by flattery. I'm not praising by telling His glories. But I'm praising by openly confessing my agreement and my acceptance of Him. This is praise or... Confess Jesus Christ says, "I confess you, Father, I openly confess you, I am in agreement with the wisdom of your plan, and I celebrate how glorious your plan is. I praise you, openly confess you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Other examples of Exmgatogo, oh, by the way, include Matthew 11:25, oh, that's our verse here, uh, Luke 10:21 and Philippians 2: 11. It also is found in James 5, by the way, where it says, confess your sins to one another. It doesn't say, hamalagao, your sins to one another. Your hamalagao belongs to the Lord. You've got to confess your sins to the Lord to be filled with the Spirit. It doesn't say, hamalagao, your sins to one another. It says, ex to one another. I'm sorry? Matthew 11.25, uh, that's our verse here. Uh, Luke 10.21 and Philippians 2.11. Luke 10.21. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in this Holy Spirit and said, I ex-amalagao you, I praise you, I confess openly to you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Philippians Chapter 2 and verse 11. Philippians 2.11. The name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess. Every tongue will, ex will confess outwardly, profess, declare, on bended knee that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And those who are not in the Lamb's book of life will make that confession on bended and knee and will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. So Jesus Christ says, I praise you. Under this, under A, you can put, I've got three things here. And we're, we are running out of time, so we'll get back to this next week and I'll have the slideshow ready to go. Praise confession is a statement of agreement with the glory of God's plan. I'm calling it praise confession. Praise confession. It's my translation for exumulago. Praise confession is a statement of agreement with the glory of God's plan. But keep in mind, if you don't know God's plan, if you don't know the glory of God's plan, how do you ever praise it? You can't. A baby believer has no capacity to do this because he's got no clue what the plan of God even is. Other than the fact that uh, he's saved, he's not going to go to hell when he dies, and he's going to basically try to learn things from the Bible and be a good person. But the depths of God's plan, the manifold wisdom of God, the outworking of Alpha to Omega glory, the dispensational structures and all of the uh, provisions of grace and, and blessings upon God the Son for all eternity... Until you get a handle on that, how do you praise God for that plan? You can't. But Jesus Christ can. We all should should endeavor to want to. Praise confession is a statement of agreement with the glory of God's plan. Jesus Christ praised confessed that the Father's design in hiding and revealing was well-pleasing. Notice, let me get back here to Matthew 11. This was a part of Jesus Christ praise confession. The glory of God's plan that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Jesus is celebrating the Father's hiding and revealing. Hiding and revealing. God the Father maintains the sovereign control over the circumstantial conditions that He places us under. Hiding, revealing. Hiding, revealing. And Jesus Christ praises Him for that. It is praiseworthy. As God the Father functions in that which is well-pleasing in His sight. The Father hides and reveals the Son, and the Son hides and reveals the Father. Notice that in verse 27. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son... And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Where do you think the Son learned about that hiding and revealing? He learned it from the Father. Because the Father already uh, accomplished the hiding and revealing. Still does to this day. Remember, no one comes to the Son unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so this is a message for praise. So, full sovereignty does the hiding. Full sovereignty does the revealing. And yet, human volition is told to come. Verse 28 says come. Verse 29 says take. It's not an either or. It's a both and. And I want you to see, and we'll come back to this next week, but I want you to see how the... the uh, The the sovereignty and volitional both and principles that we learned from 20 through 24 are applied here in 25 through 30. Because Christ is praising the Father for the hiding and revealing. Where the Father sovereignly establishes the the, uh, circumstantial conditions that every one of us faces. And yet, we're told to come and take. We're told to come and take. So we will um, we'll deal with that next week. all right? Because we want to be able to teach both sides of it. We want to be able to teach the come, the invitation to come. Because it's not only here, it's all throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. Almost the very last thing it even says in the Bible. The Spirit and the Bride say come. Alright, it's a very important message. So important that I don't want to just throw it out there and the next two minutes and keep you long. So we'll do it next Next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for Your faithfulness not testing us beyond that which we're able to bear. We thank You for Your graciousness, for the uh, sovereignty that You manifest in our lives as the outworking of Your own grace, Your own mercy, Your own loving kindness. Father, none of us earned or deserved anything. We are what we are by the grace of God and we thank You for that. Father, thank you for the safe traveling mercies uh, for the return back here to Texas, back to my flock. Thank you for the teaching that took place in my absence. And I just rejoice that your plan goes forth uh, day by day, moment by moment. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.